0: Good day listeners, welcome to today's special episode of Say Word. Say Word is a podcast we started, the goal is to inform, offer diverse perspectives and add a touch of humor where appropriate to events happening in Toronto and in our world that our viewers can connect with. Today, we're joined by a special guest, Mikaleen Khan, along with full-time staff members, Eddie and Hirsch. So a warm welcome to Mikaleen. We're happy to have you here. And for our listeners, just as an intro, Micheline is a mental health advocate, scientist, and founder of Althea Therapy, an app to help people across Canada get access to culturally responsive mental health support. We appreciate you joining us today, Micheline. It's minus 12 in Toronto. I'm pretty sure it's warmer where you are. So do you feel pity for us now that you've escaped the Canadian winters?
1: Yes and no. I'm in the UK now. I'm new to the UK and it's just rainy all the time. So I think sometimes the sun and the blue skies in Canada, even though it's freezing, is still nice.
0: The gloomy weather like has any effect on you or do you feel like it's overstated?
1: Oh, 100%. Like I I find even in, in Paris, their winters are super mild, but it's gray and rainy the entire time. So you could go like weeks without seeing a blue sky and I I really think that takes a toll on people, but I don't miss like slushing through the snow. So,
0: Yeah, we had a record snowfall of like 30 centimeters or something like that a couple of, like a week ago or two weeks ago. Um, It was my first time shoveling. I remember telling my wife, it's like, I'm going to be out for half an hour. And I literally spent three hours shoveling outside. First time shoveling. I used to live in buildings where it was taken care yeah. of for me. So yeah. like now that I'm in a home, I have to shovel. And I really felt like what I experienced was a, a villain's origin story. Um, but we'll get we'll get started with our fun topic. First of all, uh, this question for you, McLean, now that you've spent some time in Toronto, went to school in Toronto, moved over to France and the UK, based on like what you hear, whether it's your direct experience or or friends around you, do you think the challenges when it comes to dating is the same in, in all these different countries? Or do you feel like the North American struggle is is unique?
1: Um, I would say there are some things that are similar, but I will preface this by I've been with my partner for, for years. So I, I don't have like the dating experience from country to country that maybe you're hoping for, but I, you know, I will say that it's a different experience and like French dating, for instance, is very different from North American dating in that, you know, maybe in North America, we kind of put labels on everything. We codify everything. Maybe you're dating around a bit, um, deciding who you like and who you you know want to actually pursue long-term. Whereas like, in France, if you kiss somebody, you're exclusive. And there's no like conversation you have about, are we dating, are we together? There's, you don't have those. Um, the odd time you might, if you wanna clear up front, like this is casual or something, um, but it, they really don't operate in those ways. They'll still stay friends in like a group setting with X, a little small gathering, and there's like three Xs all there, and it's not a big deal at all. So I found that really interesting.
0: Wow, wow. That's a bombshell. You You kiss a social contract immediately.
1: Yeah, like, like, yeah.
0: Okay, so what about a scenario where two people don't know each other, they they come to a party, things evolve quickly, I guess. So even in that setting where they don't have that, like, background or knowledge of each other, if they kiss at that party, like, they're still together or...?
1: now mind you i'm not going to be your french dating expert okay
0: but
1: i think like maybe that might be a little bit different like okay. i think if like you've gone out on one date and you know maybe you you try it out one more time you kiss on that second date it's, it's like this is the person that i'm dating this is my boyfriend or girlfriend and it's the the labels aren't so like heavy there there's not there's no big deal with saying this is the person that i'm dating whereas i think here it's a big deal you know people lead up to it there's all this tension around it and
0: it's is it that there's not as much appetite for situationships or entanglements
1: yeah i think they they, like they keep things really casual even in like from from so many different genres in a sense like from fashion is very casual dating the labels are casual even Mm. even sometimes marriage like i know a lot of french people and again this is a all of them but they don't do like huge weddings and things they go to the courthouse they get married Mm -hmm. that's the marriage Mm -hmm. and so there's kind of just a different like um weight put to these things sometimes interesting interesting
0: i mean the kissing to get into a relationship is very on brand for france they're known as a romantic society so i could see why that would be the gateway but yeah in north america there's a lot more expectations i think some people are pessimistic, but there are still people who who are optimistic, who want to navigate, but they find it hard, uh, whether it's lockdowns, um, time constraints, aligning expectations. It can be a challenge, and people have been looking online uh, for more and more help. And what we see is an explosion of male-oriented dating coaches, the likes of Kevin Samuels and, and Fresh and Fit. Um, just for background if our audience doesn't know who Kem- Kevin Samuels is, he's a professional image consultant and YouTuber who's fi- famous for his dating advice and mix of what he deems hard truth with a dose of entertainment. Fresh and Fit are two influencers who claim to provide the truth to females, and I use air quotes in truth, uh, fitness and finances, there's a difference between the two. It seems Kevin Samuels, because he's he's older, he's 52, he used to work in sales. Uh, his, his stuff is a little bit more refined, whereas Fresh and Fit almost seem like caricatures to me. But have you heard of these uh, these um, lifestyle coaches, Nicolene, uh, or are they new to you? So
1: first, Kevin Samuels I've never heard of before today. And I'm going to be honest, I wish it stayed that way. Like... <laughs> It was I couldn't even make it through some of the stuff. It was I let's not even I'm not even going to touch that one. Yeah. Um the fresh and fit I'd only heard about recently with all of like the drama coming around them. And uh I just think that they're s- such fragile egos, insecure, colorists, like never thought of them as like dating experts or life coaches. So that was surprising to me. I just thought there were these random guys doing a podcast where they just constantly just disrespect women, particularly obviously black women.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: just like, just imagine finding joy and just putting down black women every day. It was just so gross to watch. I don't, I don't even have a lot of the words because I honestly get so much anger yeah. <laughs> thinking about them. And I just feel like they're just two guys who seem to harbor so much hate and parade it around as like preference and opinion. And they use it as fuel to get more views. Um, Because they know that if they keep putting out these like, extreme perspectives, they get more people talking about them. And they're honestly a a podcast that I just wish people would stop even giving them a platform. Because I think some of the views they put out there are just stupid and really just dangerous sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people I feel like when they struggle in the dating scene, look for things to play. So it's like, why am I not being pursued? I thought I was doing everything right. Why am I like? Why don't women? Um, if it's a man or a man, if it's a woman or or any any kind of relationship, like why am I not seen as valuable? And these these kind of platforms try to come up with convenient reasons as to why um, or or like categories categorizations. Kevin Samuel specifically has a funny list for what he calls a high value man. He says a high value man has six criteria a man's ability to earn at least 10,000 monthly. The 10,000 monthly have to happen over the course of five years. You have to have acceptance from a group of other high-value men. Um, you have to have access to a fraternity-like network, and you have to have an accepted, prominent position by, a, by society and the ability to be of use to other high-value men. None of this mentioned women or women's viewpoints. I already... I already know that you think this list is trash. I'm not going to ask you to like litigate it, but for men who are looking for kind of guidance on, or, or um, a checklist uh, of what could make them attractive or what could uh, lead success in the dating world. I know you can't speak for all women, but is it okay if we ask you, what do you think is high value? We know you have a partner. Uh, so you're, you personally are not looking, but, and of what would you tell men to focus on if they wanted to make themselves more attractive to women in general?
1: I think, um, I don't know. There's a lot of things, right. But again, it's like, like you said, everybody is going to be different. And I think for me, it's being like open communication and discussions like this about important topics that are, you know, that are important to you and being able to discuss those and have impactful dialogue is the way that I, prefer to call it because sometimes people say it's uncomfortable conversations I think they're important and then they need to be discussed and the people that you keep in your life should be aware of them and should be open to having these types of conversations um being honest obviously Mm. Uh, I think honesty in relationships and that's more than just like when you make a mistake and you own up to it I think honest conversations um, are actually what helps build a relationship you know, whether it's you calling your partner out for something or you saying, hey, this really bothered me or um, sharing different viewpoints that, you know, might, they might disagree with. So I think it, it's across the board because when you're the way that I see it is when you're in a toxic relationship um, is when you hide your truth to, you know, build their ego. Right. You don't want to you don't want to step on any toes. So you don't share um, your truth or you're not honest about things. And I think those are things that really break down a relationship and they, they don't last Mm -hmm. and having fun. (laughs) I don't know, like relationships where I think you laugh a lot, I Mm -hmm. think have are are really strong for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Like my partner and I, we laugh a lot. We joke a lot. And I think it, it really builds a strong foundation. And then we also have lots of honest conversations. Um, He might be sick of the amount of times I talk about, you know like i said anti-black racism feminism mental health but he has them with me and i think it's important because you have to make space for what's important to your partner let me stop yeah. there because i'm feeling
0: no that's good
1: like i mean
0: your trajectory. No, no 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 that's good that's good um but we'll move on to to the main section and and eddie you can
2: introduce um our main topics all right thanks harsh uh, and michaelin we really wanted to hear more about you and also some of the great work that you have been doing not only in the world but also within the community but let's uh, let's start off with something closer to you we on the podcast and also for our viewers we would appreciate to know exactly what made you want to pursue a career in um, the field of climate change and how has that journey been shaped by your identity as a young black woman
1: Thanks for the question. Um, it's it's interesting because I actually was pursuing a career in biology. I just I was one of those kids who were like always outdoors collecting animals, I used to bring them home, and my parents absolutely hated it. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to be a scientist. I just went into biology, and it was there that I kind of fell into climate change because I love learning about like wildlife and different ecosystems. Honestly, a lot of the decisions that I made in university were all based on you know what classes were of interest and like kind of sparked joy. And so I just continued to to pick those courses. And I randomly applied for this uh, undergrad thesis project where I had to work with plants, but you know, it was a uh, how climate change impacts insects. And so I would grow these plants and rear these insects on the plants and worked in these climate control chambers um, to just induce different temperatures and drought scenes and stuff. And so that's how I got introduced to, to climate change and I just continued to pursue that afterwards. You know, But I, I was really lucky to have a lot of supportive mentors and teachers, and I know a lot of people, especially people of color, don't always get that. So I know that I'm you know, privileged in that sense. Um, and science and academia can really feel like a bit of a boys club uh, sometimes. It can be hard to feel like you belong in that space when you're like the only black person or the only person of color in a lab. And what's even interesting is when I started getting into field work, um, I was able, I was lucky enough to get to go back to my own home country in Trinidad and do field work there. And again, all of the people that I worked with were white, you know? And so it's just, I realize there's so many other women and other people of color who are just struggling in these spaces or feeling really isolated um, if they didn't have those really great mentors and, you know, great, great teachers along the way that supported them. And um, I think a lot of that has shaped the decisions that I make and the topics that I'm interested in and, you know, like one of the topics that I'm working on now, a lot of this has paved the way for that. So I think that journey was really important.
2: Just to like go back to like the topic of like, say climate change, as you know, climate change is a very umbrella word. The space as well is diverse. Uh, for example, your career, you started off focusing on the terrestrial side, forest land use and agriculture, and now you've shifted over to sustainable ocean economies. Put simply, a sustainable ocean economy is one where humanity effectively safeguards marine and coastal ecosystems, uses oceans' resources such as seafood in a sustainable way and ensures the benefits from the ocean and ocean industries are shared fairly and can last into the future. That's a mouthful. But we would want to understand, do you agree with that definition and why shift to sustainable ocean economies and what are some of the guiding principles of this area?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question, a little loaded too. Definitions can always change. And I think different organizations, different people have different definitions for what they mean by you know, sustainability, even just in general. But I think one of the important things with sustainable ocean economies is that you can't achieve that without equity being at the heart of that work, you know, and when we, you know, kind of shift into this ocean equity space, cause that's one of the small, the small areas that I'm, you know, exploring right now is, you know, it, it's an enormous area, you know, there's not a simple definition either for it. I think I always have to bring it back to like, when we look at these sustainability topics, you always have to address the kind of social equity and, and, and justice aspects, you know, inequity is systemic and it's bit embedded in just existing political and economic systems and you know governments and businesses and civil society, they need to account for these broader structural factors that sometimes will undermine efforts, for instance, for social equity. Because if you think about it like where extreme poverty or food insecurity exists and local communities can't afford to stop harvesting a highly degraded resource, they never think about that. They'll think, well stop harvesting this resource Um, because we want to save this one species, right? And it's like, that's amazing. We do need to save that species or that ecosystem, but you're forgetting the structural barriers there. These people, if they stop harvesting this, what are they going to do for their own livelihoods? And I think we come from kind of this privileged position to blame poorer countries for degrading resources that we, you know, from richer nations have caused all of that, Um, you know, and...
0: To follow up on your point, McLean, it is one of the the challenges I've seen in the climate change space, because it often feels like rich developed countries lecturing underdeveloped countries or or emerging economies on kind of what not to do. And at the same time, we're seeing like the price of oil uh, reach sky highs, where we're seeing, I think, China increase their coal production. So do you feel like this of hypocrisy that, that some of these emerging economies kind of point to? Do you feel like that's that these countries are aware when they're delivering that message? Do they ignore that hypocrisy? How, how, how do you see that dynamic play out? Because it is interesting because um, a lot of these, these uh, harmful impact have come from these countries industrializing to emerge as strong world economies and some of these developed nations saying like, why can't we have access to the same blueprint? Like, why do you have to force us to do things differently? And isn't it weird that you're going to develop the technologies that we have to buy from you um, in order to like ramp up? So what do you think that conversation has been like viewing it um, in that space?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, this could be its own whole conversation. Those issues are definitely prevalent. Um, Sometimes people will talk about, oh, well, there's like polluters pay more, but each country has to kind of like sign on to those. And obviously, the ones who know they pollute way more do not want to. Um, There's so many research papers that I've read where they'll say, oh, if only the Congo, you know, uh, switched to this type of stove versus this one, they could, you know, save X amount of emissions. And it's just interesting because they never talk about what um they could be doing in their country to stop emissions so there's, there's there's conversations like this that happen across across the entire space and it's really it's a frustrating thing um, but it's really political as well and it's difficult to navigate sometimes these political spaces um because they will pick and choose what sometimes science that they want to follow or you know, they it it'll be countries like the U.S. who have more political weight, so they can find ways to not you know pay more or things like that. You know, and it, it's 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 difficult if you don't know how to navigate the politics of it. It's really unfortunate, um, but those inequities and um, what do you call it, like double standards, exist across the board.
2: Yeah, I just had a question. Like, so in terms of like even on the politics, there's certain myths and like false narratives that keep on being perpetuated like we hear it say in the U.S. especially with like climate change is natural like it happens I don't see the end of the world in my backyard why should I be worried about a a community in Trinidad or like a mountain manslide in eastern Uganda why do these narratives continue to perpetuate as well why do people feel as though if they're not feeling climate change they have no need to really participate or help
0: It's a good
1: question I think it sometimes that comes down to out of sight, out of mind. You know, people who have the privilege of not experiencing the negative impacts of climate change don't think it's a big deal because they don't ever actually see it. And I mean, it's a huge problem when this is like, it's not easy to, you know, go without knowing about it. I think people talk about it all the time. It's across the news, you're going to come across it. So I think it's whether you decide to look into it or not. It's like when I was in France last year and and, uh, there was all these stories that came out in Germany because there were serious floodings that happened where people died. And I don't know if you saw it, but there was a a woman who was on the news and it went a little bit viral because she had said, oh, it's so terrible. You know, you wouldn't expect this to happen in Germany. You would expect this to happen in poor countries. And so many people took issue with it naturally Mm. because it was, you know, this should only happen in developing countries. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was crazy, you know, and just because she said it in a nice way, people thought, oh well, it's not a big deal, and
0: yeah, I don't know stuff like that. Still, a lot more polished than shithole countries. I'll give her that. Yeah, I think we forget about how crazy Trump was and what came out of his mouth that I guess made other politicians feel feel normalized in saying what would be considered problematic. But why would you hone in more on like sustainable oceans, um, given the Given the plethora of options that you've had for looking into a career in climate change, why did this specifically speak to you?
1: That's yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I should preface it by I'm new to the the ocean space, but for me, it was really interesting and to to shift into this space because in a lot of the discussions that I was having um, in the climate change space, always focused on land use and agriculture, and very very rarely talked about the impacts or the opportunity uh, that the ocean has in the climate space. Although it's also greatly impacted by by climate change, it also serves as a really important opportunity to help mitigate it. And and so for me, when this opportunity came about, it was really interesting because I often, the other kind of actors that I work with in my space is usually kind of like government, maybe farmers, their NGOs, whereas in this, looking at kind of the sustainable ocean economy, it's those things, but it's also local commun- local coastal communities, fisher-, fisher communities, shipping, energy, transport. And so it brought in so many different areas for me to learn. And really it was a big shift because it's, it's a better learning opportunity for me to kind of get a, a really holistic view of climate impacts without just leaving the ocean out of it, which is really odd because it takes up 70% of the earth. Yeah, so exactly. it's near that they're out of, they're, they're not included in these conversations.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we're going to shift the conversation. There was an example uh, of something that draws ire. You know, um, I had a knee jerk reaction to it. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure you've heard of the story. But a couple of years back, there was a story about the Ugandan climate activist Vanessa Nakate being cropped out of an AP photo uh, with other climate activists in Davos, including Greta Greta. Thunberg. Yeah, Greta Thunberg. So a lot of people commented that it was symbolic. Uh, I'm talking about Vanessa's removal from that photo of how climate activists of color are treated by the media. And, and it's very hard, unless you're knowledgeable about that space, you know, even I, I'm not very knowledgeable in that space, but it's hard to escape coverage of Greta Thunberg, right? And I just, I can't think of a, um, a climate activist, uh, who's a person of color that the media kind of leans on as much. So I definitely do get that frustration. Uh, But given the fact that the climate crisis obviously affects communities of color and probably disproportionately so, how frustrating is it that they don't get the coverage or don't get the attention in this space?
1: This is actually one of the most frustrating things to witness in this space as a person of color. You know, we all know Greta, who is an amazing young woman, Um, And she's the face of the youth climate movement. But like, while the work of so many black, indigenous and brown youth who actually live in countries where they're experiencing the brunt of climate impacts and have actually put their literal lives on the line to protect their communities, like are often erased from the conversation. It's extremely frustrating because you would think, you know, these kids who are like 16 and under, you know, who are literally willing to put their bodies on the line to save, you know, indigenous land, to save rainforests in their communities, would get attention. Um, But no, we give the attention to a young European girl who lives in a wealthy nation, who does not experience the impacts of climate change. It just, it makes no sense. You know, like we rarely talk about, for instance, like the indigenous youth water protectors, like right. at Standing Rock, there's um, tons of black and brown people, like there's actually so many that we never hear about and it's it's honestly gut-wrenching sometimes because they're so young and they're doing so much um, and we really need to be giving a platform for their voices, they're the ones on the ground fighting for this without any recognition or attention mm-hmm. and they're making huge strides without any of the the, the money that for instance spread gets, the platform that she has, the media attention that she has. Mm-hmm. So just think of what they could do if they had even a little bit of that. And so that's probably the thing that upsets me the most because if they had even just a, a smidge of it, yeah. they could be doing such incredible things.
0: Yeah, you're in the space and, and you kind of see how um, uh, senior leaders in that space think. Do you think it's because of ignorance? Like, they just, they themselves are not aware of these climate activists in, in, in communities of color? Or do you think it's act more active in terms of the way they think they, they don't want to give those people a seat at the table? Um, they don't want to hear?
1: I mean, I don't know. I think, I think sometimes it's really just that they prioritize voices that are like theirs. They see somebody who looks like them, who comes from the same country as them, the same community as them, and they think, wow, this is incredible. Let me give them a platform. You know, it's kind of similar to like, in the development space, a lot of times, uh, you know, you, you'll you hear about the Middle East and Africa expert, and it's like a white Croatian man, you know, and it just doesn't really make sense. Um, and yeah. it's because their boss is a white Croatian guy. And so they think, yeah. oh, well, wow, he spent one year in the Congo, he's our, you know, Africa expert that will be able to translate everything for us and they think they're making a great choice, you know, and it's not to take away from these people. I'm sure they do great work, but it doesn't make sense because you would think if you want a Middle East and Africa expert, you might hire somebody who's actually from there, you know? And so there are decisions like that. um, I think it's, it's mirrored in these spaces. They give voices, they give platforms to people who look like them. And they don't think about um, diversifying those voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if it's, you know, vindictive or anything, but I think oftentimes it's because they're picking something that looks like them and they, that, that makes sense to them.
0: I know we can go on forever on this topic, and, and I think it's it's going to give our audience a, a real window into this world. So we appreciate you giving us a chance to talk about talk about. Uh, the climate issue. But I wanted to switch gears a bit. Kind of related, kind of unrelated. But we know that you're you're very much a mental health advocate. And you founded a company called Althea Therapy. It it delivers an app to help people across Canada get access to culturally responsive mental health support. Um, So you're a multifaceted individual. I think it's very interesting for us to cross over into kind of what you've done with Althea, um, can you give us a bit of background in terms of what made you want to start this app and and how the journey has gone so far?
1: Thank you. Honestly, what, what started it was a few different things, but I think the spark was, um, like for so many other people, was um, in 2020 with like the anti-Black racism, with Black Lives Matter, um, police brutality, the anti-Asian discrimination, and it just felt like layer upon layer upon layer. You were just seeing these communities' mental health being so negatively impacted by everything that was going on. And so for me, it just really started out as just a project. I was trying to find a way that I could provide support to these communities. And I think it was it's taken me a long time because, you know, I come from the science space, so I think, well, I don't have the expertise for this Um, but I always, I think I credit my parents a lot because the whole reason why I have all of these open discussions about these topics is because my parents, you know, curated a space for us to do this from when we were very, very young, you know, they put us in diversity camp. We used to do that. And my mom is a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so we've been like these little mini activists our whole lives. And so I think that's what probably gave me the motivation to continue But I just started taking some courses and uh, programs and learning how I could put this together. And really, that's how it started. I had um, like an MVP, just like a basic product. I started testing it with different people. So I brought on some mental health advisors who helped. That's really when I realized like this is something that I should really share with the community and not just like of my friends. And so I consider myself really just like this accidental entrepreneur. I, I really fell into it. I had no desire, honestly, to be a business owner before this. Um, and I continue it because I think it's important. And I see the impact that I, that I could have um, and that I am having. And so uh, I think it's a really worthwhile thing to to continue pursuing.
0: Yeah. No, that's awesome. And, and I'm glad you started it. It's an inspiration for people like us who are in the uh, professional world and uh, we're, we're, we're doing our day job and we're thinking about like starting a, a side project or, or, or a company, something to benefit the community. But we get so caught up in perfectionism. Like, how can I launch? You know, it's, it's discussions we had with the podcast early on too, right? It's like, okay, do we have funding? Do we have like uh, something to back us? How do we like launch? But often it's like that support comes organically because people do want to get behind you, but as long as you keep it kind of wrapped up and nobody knows about it, it's like hard to gather that momentum. So I'm sure you've seen, I know you've seen success um, with Althea therapy and uh, that success came from that courage to actually just, from my understanding, the client base that you're serving against in Canada um and 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 you launched it. you're overseas. Uh, what challenges does that present?
1: Well, definitely, this kind of new virtual world helps. Um, it helps a lot, but it is difficult um, because whenever I do come home, I do come home pretty often, I would say, is when I like have to book in meetings with people in person or I could book meetings that are like in the evening, whereas when I'm here, I'm always like, sorry, I need it to be your morning or afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I am not a night owl like I literally need my sleep so I cannot be doing like late calls yeah. um, but I think for the most part it's been it's been really good I think you will run into challenges every once in a while where maybe you need to be somewhere in person so that definitely can be a challenge when you're abroad. It just means that I'm like in meetings from the morning with my my ocean job, <laughs> and then meetings in the evening for you know alpha therapy, But I'm okay with that because I like the business. I like I like working on this. I like doing it. But I think it's just recognizing that your time is not your own, um, and there are times where you might need to reschedule things or coordinate based on time zones. It's really just time zones that makes it difficult.
0: It's nice to hear of an entrepreneur who actually prioritizes their sleep, which I think is very important um, and, and in our communities because there's there's an emphasis on grind culture. Sometimes that gets lost. But the last question uh, given the time constraints that we have that I wanted to ask, uh, there was this term uh, cultural sensitivity uh, that Althea focuses on as well um, in delivering mental, uh, mental health care services and partnering with communities. Now, in my own personal therapy journey, I started off with someone who was way outside of my community. And I I think that it it felt good to me because sometimes you actually want a third-person perspective. Like, uh, I know a lot of people who come from the Black community uh, don't, sometimes they say like, oh, I I don't want to just focus on getting a Black um, therapist because it doesn't matter. I just want general advice anyway. However, I started off like that. Then I switched over to someone who can share a bit more about my background. And I found my connection to them so so much stronger. And I felt like the advice that they were giving me, this person's a black male, it was all that understanding of what it is to be a black male was baked into the advice. Um, for those who who either are not sure about why cultural sensitivity is so important, or yeah, haven't started their their therapy journey, what would you say about kind of the role that cultural sensitivity plays in the mental health space, um, and and why it's important for people to consider this as they consider a therapist? May it might not be the only uh, factor, but well, why do you think it's important for them to think about it? Mm-hmm. Great question, and I think a really important one
1: um and there's so many places to start i think firstly why something like that is important is because you know historically black people people of color um have some there's it's therapy is so stigmatized within our communities as a base for many good reasons you know in terms of like um you know i always say this but black and brown people were like four times more likely to be admitted to psychiatric units than being offered medication or talk therapy. So there's a fear of being seen as crazy because they ship you off to, you know, a psych ward and not actually try and help you, you know? And so there's a lot of distrust within those systems that just gets ingrained in generation after generation. So there's some communities where it's, you know, within a lot of black communities, it's the, the thing that we tend to say is, you know, you don't share your your family problems, personal problems with anybody outside the house. You know, if you got a problem, you t- you keep it in the family, you know, things like that. And so you're, you're raised to believe that you don't have to seek out help, right? And so some of them, when they do, and let's say a lot of your problems are systemic from the community that you're in, you know, maybe you experience a lot of prejudice, a lot of, you know, racism in, in your class if you're from, you know, let's say an all-white school or something like that. And... You know, if you have there and mind you, there are tons of amazing white therapists, of course, Um, but some of them, what they what they lack is that cultural responsiveness, that that cultural understanding of these systemic problems, because when they don't understand the systemic problems because they're not taught it, um, how can you properly address it, you know, and I think it's also when you're in therapy, it's like a space where you really wanna be vulnerable and not afraid to say things, you know, like for me, because I tell you, I talk about anti-black racism and I talk about all these things all the time. I'm gonna talk about what it's like being in a white community, you know, or what it's like to be the only black person in the space. And I need somebody who gets that and who's gonna understand why I feel this way. And I don't wanna have to explain you know, what a microaggression is to my therapist or explain why that actually was racism and not just me feeling, you know, like it was, or, you know, maybe that comment wasn't race driven. Yes, it was because we experienced this our entire lives, you know, and for me to have to waste a session explaining that is me, it's costing me money, you know? And so those are like some of the the areas that I think are important, but I think all therapists, you know, regardless of race, we need to have kind of anti oppression training, um, inclusion training, um, culture. There, there are literally um, so many of these trainings available that some therapists do not take because they don't prioritize it. So I wouldn't want to go see a therapist who doesn't prioritize, you know, learning anti oppression techniques and understanding what you know, your clients are going through on a day-to-day basis and what are some, you know, suggestions or tools or, you know, workbooks that you can offer to them that are actually going to address those issues and not just the issues that maybe they experience growing up in their communities. And and I think that's, those are just some of the reasons why I think having somewhere where, you know, there's like a shared vernacular, age, race, gender to choose from is incredibly important, especially in these spaces.
0: As an awesome answer, yeah. But we're going to end our episode here. I wanted again to thank you, McLean. Thank you for your time. Uh, We want to thank you for your perspectives. And for our listeners, we want to thank them for tuning into today's episode. As always, we hope they found this insightful. We hope it made them think. And we look forward to having them join us for our next episode. Plug out the therapy.
1: Thanks. Um, well, you can download it on the App Store or Google Play. Um, so there's that. Or you can check out our website. And it's um, healththeotherapy.com.